Let me invite you to open your Bibles to Exodus chapter 2 and 3. We'll be looking there this morning as well as uh, looting or looking at a couple of other passages uh, also in the book of Exodus. So as we, uh, we come to this familiar story this morning in a continuation of our study, our survey of the Old Testament where we see time and again that the gospel is present and foreshadowed throughout all of the Old Testament, throughout all of the scripture. go to the Lord in prayer. Our Father, as we come to your word this morning, I pray that you would speak clearly to us. Remind us that it is not by bread alone that we live, but by every word that proceeds from your mouth. Lord, we are in need of being strengthened and renewed. Uh, We are in constant need of that. Some feel strong, and yet that energy needs to uh, be uh, renewed. Others need true renewal, even revival in their lives. And Lord, that comes from you and from you alone. We pray that as we commit this time to your word, you would speak to us, that we would hear you speaking. Even despite my voice, even through these words, we would know that by your Holy Spirit, you speak and you bring about what you intend. Lord, bless us in this time of the word as we bless you by giving our ear to it. We pray in the name of Christ, who is the Word incarnate. Amen. Genesis chapter 2, begin our reading in verse 23, and we'll read up through chapter, uh, verse 12 of chapter 3. Hear the Word of God. During those many days, the king of Egypt died, and the people of Israel groaned because of their slavery and cried out for help. Their cry for rescue from slavery came up to God. And God heard their groaning. And God remembered his covenant with Abraham, with Isaac, and with Jacob. God saw the people of Israel, and God knew. Now, Moses was keeping the flock of his father-in-law Jethro, the priest of Midian. And he led his flock to the west side of the wilderness and came to Horeb, the mountain of God. And the angel of the Lord appeared to him, in a flame of fire out of the midst of a bush. He looked, and behold, the bush was burning, yet it was not consumed. And Moses said, I will turn aside to see this great sight, why the bush is not burned. When the Lord saw that he turned aside to see, God called to him out of the bush, Moses, Moses. And he said, here I am. Then he said, do not come near. Take your sandals off your feet, for the place on which you are standing is holy ground. And he said, I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob. And Moses hid his face, for he was afraid to look at God. Then the Lord said, I have surely seen the affliction of my people who are in Egypt and have heard their cry because of their taskmasters. I know their suffering." And I have come down to deliver them out of the hand of the Egyptians and to bring them up out of that land to a good and broad land, a land flowing with milk and honey to the place of the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Amorites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites. And now, behold, the cry of the people of Israel has come to me. 
And I have also seen the oppression with which the Egyptians oppressed them. Come, I will send you to Pharaoh that you may bring my people, the children of Israel, out of Egypt. But Moses said to God, Who am I that I should go to Pharaoh and bring the children of Israel out of Egypt? He said, But I will be with you, and this shall be the sign for you that I have sent you. When you have brought the people out of Egypt, you shall serve God on this mountain. May the Lord bless us and grant us understanding from his holy word. Now I know the story of Moses is familiar to most, even if simply from watching Charlton Heston every year in the Ten Commandments. What I want to do this morning is to zero in on this very familiar passage, this pinnacle story of the Old Testament, the one to which the Lord goes back and time and again repeatedly says, remember, remember that I am the God who delivered you out of the land of Egypt. I want to look at this story and use it both to explore it, dig into it, and then also somewhat as a springboard to help us to understand the whole process of deliverance that God enacted for the people of Israel and then how that applies to our lives as well, even here today. Now, before we move into the story, it's, I think it'll be helpful to just make sure that we have a connection and context. While most people are familiar with that, I want to bridge the gap between what we looked at last week and where we are, have come up to today, because a lot has taken place. Last week, you may recall, if you were here, that we looked at the story of Joseph. Actually, we looked at the story of God, who was at work in the life of Joseph, to bring Joseph to be a man who would, uh, to be the man that he ought to be, a man who becomes a a foreshadowing of the coming of of God's own son. A man who grew up in a very dysfunctional home, but they were the heirs of God's promise to Abraham uh, that God would bless the entire world through them. A very unlikely family as you look at them and the dynamics within that family, but God was at work. Joseph, whose brothers hated him, had sold him into slavery, and then from slavery he went from prison till ultimately uh, he was able to become the the second most powerful man in the world. He was the prime minister of all of Egypt as God was at work and leading him throughout the way uh, in a number of circumstances that he would not have chosen for his life, but nevertheless that God was using both to build Joseph and to fulfill his promise in order to bless the world through his family. Joseph, after he was the prime minister, his family was living, had come to live with them in Egypt and then apparently others as well, other other Jewish families had come to, to live there as well. And the scriptures tell us that they, they prospered, they flourished, they grew in number, they, they grew in, in significant number. And so there was a large Jewish population that was living in Egypt at, at that time. And then as the scriptures unfold, Joseph, time came, Joseph died. New Pharaoh came in, then another. And we have a scene that takes place early in the book of Exodus, late uh, in the book of Genesis, where we're told Joseph had died, and eventually a, a new Pharaoh who did not know who Joseph was. Joseph was just a name in the history books, and several generations had passed, and now Joseph was just a, a long memory of an old-time politician. The new Pharaoh came, and he saw the number of Jewish people that were living in the land, and it was intimidating. He thought them to be a, a plague on their, uh, on their culture, a threat to their way of life. It was, it was a force that needed to be extinguished. And so that Pharaoh declared that all of the Jewish people should be taken into slavery. If he couldn't get rid of them, he would, he would make use of them. 
then that not being good enough, he realized that they continued to, to flourish and they were still having too much influence. And so he declared that all of the male children, firstborn, uh, all of the male, uh, firstborn male, all the male children should uh, be, uh, be extinguished. And so we move, see that the Pharaoh put them not only into slavery, but we see an, an example of racial genocide. And it's in that context that Moses was born. Again, I'm probably not covering new ground for anybody, but just so that we understand, as Moses was born to a, a Jewish mother, who did not want to see her son killed. She decided that she would put him up for uh, somewhat directed adoption. She hid him, put him in a basket, waited till the Pharaoh's daughter came to bathe, sent Moses' older sister out with the basket, let him float in the area where uh, this young woman was, was bathing. She saw the basket. She decided she wanted to have a, have, have a kid for her own, so she adopted Moses brought him up in her own home and raised him in the home of the Pharaoh. Later on, as Moses was a young man, he realized that he had found out that he had actually had Jewish heritage. This was a blow to him, having grown up, one perhaps not knowing, uh, needing to search, understand uh, where he had come from. He was torn between two cultures, one that was powerful and that he was and an heir to, and one that he rightly belonged to. While he was in the midst of this you know, personal angst, he ran across and encountered uh, one of the Egyptian men, a taskmaster who was abusive to those in his charge, to Jewish men in his charge. Moses came trying to stop the abuse, and the Egyptian turned on Moses. Moses, in his anger, kills the Egyptian man allowing the Jewish man to go free. Moses looked around, thought nobody else knew, but still deeply grieved at his, his circumstance, willing to, to go, until not long after he comes upon two Jewish men who were fighting. And Moses says to them, you guys are brothers. Why are you fighting? One of the men turns to Moses and says, are you going to kill us too? At that point, a great anxiety filled Moses. He realized that what he had done was not done in secret. People knew, people perhaps had, had been talking about the fact that he had already killed an Egyptian man, and Moses ran, put himself into exile. And that's where we find Moses when we come to this point in, in our text. Moses had left behind the comfort and the status of being a, a son, an heir of the Pharaoh, the people who had uh, been involved in his past and had gone out into the wilderness. And it's in the wilderness that God comes to Moses, and he comes to Moses in the form of a burning bush. Now, in one sense, a burning bush may not have been an unusual sight out in a dry, hot desert. But Moses had been around long enough to realize there was something unique about this particular burning bush. This burning bush was burning, but it wasn't being consumed. And so that grabbed Moses' attention, and God got Moses' attention through the form of a burning bush. And Moses, being drawn to this, he didn't decide that he had other things to do, that he was too busy with his own life and his own thoughts. He just wanted to go mind his own business. Moses took the time to go seek out what this might be, to go seek out God. God, having his attention, speaks to Mo Moses at that point in time and tells him that he is going to be the one that is going to be the Savior for his people, the Deliverer for his people, that he was going to send him back to Egypt. 
Now, most of us, when we look at this story and we consider the story, we think of Moses as the hero of the story. And I don't want to minimize Moses' significance in, in this story or in any part of the Scripture. Moses has great significance in, in the Scriptures. God, Moses is the one that God did raise up and called to be the deliverer of his people. Moses is the foreshadowing of the great deliverer who was to come in the person of Christ. And so anyone who holds those roles is not insignificant. But Moses is not the hero of the story. God is the hero of the story, just as God is the hero of every story throughout the entire Bible. Moses is God's vessel. Moses is God's tool. But Moses is not the one who should get all of our attention. God is the one who should get our attention. To put Moses as the one that should get all of our attention is just foolish. Some of you are probably aware and, and, and probably have already gone seen. I saw in the paper and hope to go see the Michelangelo uh, display that is at the Muscarella Museum. There are drawings, sketches that have not been seen by a lot of people, and it uh, has the opportunity to come here to town. To assume that Mo Moses is the hero of this story would be somewhat like going and seeing those drawings and then becoming enamored with the pencil, perhaps, that Michelangelo had used. To just ignore the genius of Michelangelo and just say, look at that pencil, if one still exists. Or to go to see um, the, you know, his, the, the, the statue of David and, and, and go and just admire a chisel. Now, I, I like certain artifacts, and as I look around here at the different history things, it's intriguing to me, uh, but they're not the primary. They're just connectors to what is important. And Moses is the tool. Moses is the tool that God chose to use. Not insignificant, but he is not the primary focus. So what, and that's important for us to understand as we look at the story. I want to look at it from that perspective. Because from that perspective, we will see some things that perhaps we don't normally see, or things that we have seen but we have not properly emphasized. I want to look at the story from the perspective of God being the hero and see how God's grace was alive in the life of the people that he called his own. I want you to see how God was at work even in their brokenness. And we'll look and see how Moses became a vessel of God, even with his own hesitancy and initial unwillingness, and how God used him to redeem a nation. There's a couple of practical things that we want to look at this morning. The first is simply this. We need to know, and we need to hear, and we need to remind ourselves of this. God hears the cries of his people. We see it very clearly in this text. That's what God says a couple of times in this text. We see it all throughout the Old Testament and throughout all of the Scripture, really. God hears the cries of his people. Here in the text, he hears the cries of Israel. And we need to know God hears our cries as well. In your brokenness, in your pain, in your frustration, even in your bondage, you know, things that, habits that you just don't seem to be able to break or circumstances that you don't seem to be able to get yourself out of, things that cause you to groan, God hears your cries and hears your groan. It's the promise that God has made to his people. One of the things that we need to understand is that we, as God's people, have the same relationship to God as the people here did. It's a very bold statement to make but it's important that we understand that. It's the promise of the covenant. Covenant is not just a theological proposition, something that we uh, assent to, something that we believe. Covenant is a foundation to help us understand the nature of the relationship that we have with God 
that gives us hope and encouragement, even in the midst of circumstances that we don't want to be in. We don't want anybody in. But the principle of the covenant is important for us to consider, and it helps us to understand, as God has loved the people here, which we don't question when we read the story, and he's heard the cries of his people, and God is beginning through Moses to act in order to deliver them from their circumstances. God also hears our cries as well. Because the covenant that God made with Abraham, he said, is a covenant that's an everlasting covenant, not only made with Abraham, but to his children, and to his children who are far off. It's an everlasting covenant that all the promises that God made to Abraham and to Abraham's immediate descendants, they belong to everyone who is a child of Abraham. Paul shows us in Galatians that if we have trusted in Christ, we have become adopted. We are part of the family of Abraham. We become children of Abraham as well. And it's important when we go back and we look at the covenant that God made with Abraham when God says, this is for your children, for everyone in your household, whether they are born to you or the, whether they are adopted by you. In whatever way, we are related to Abraham. As Paul says, we are related by faith. We become children of Abraham. Then that theological concept that sometimes gets confusing we need to stop and think about and say, okay, if I'm a child of Abraham, that means all the promises that were made to Abraham are promises that are made to me. And if God's promise to Abraham is that I will love you, I will bless you, I will keep you, I will deliver you, and God has shown that through Abraham's children throughout the Old Testament, well, then those same promises are made to you and to me as we have trusted in Jesus Christ. It's important for us to realize that. Because some of us are here today with issues. There are issues that you groan about to the Lord. Perhaps you're saying, where are you, God? Do you even know what's going on? It may be relationships that you see around you that are crumbling. It may be the specific impact of many of you, that many of you uh, have been hit with, with the current economic situation and the sequestration and the uncertainty that it unfolds. It can be anything that puts us in circumstances where we are crying out to God and saying, Lord, I don't know, and I don't understand, and I don't see you at work. Do you know? Do you understand? Do you, do you hear me? We need to hear, realize the promise that God makes to us through this passage when God says, look, I hear the cries of my people, and I know. The most comforting words that we might have in this entire section is in verse 25 of chapter 2. Because as we understand that we are God's people, we are God's children, through faith in Christ, we become heirs of Abraham. We realize the promises are made to us as well. In verse 25 says, God saw the people of Israel, Israel meaning people of God, and God knew. If you're in the midst of circumstances that are uncertain or painful or tedious, hear those words. God knows. God cares. Nobody else may care. Maybe other people may not understand, but God knows and God cares. I remember hearing a few years ago Lou Holtz. Some of you are familiar with Lou Holtz. He was famed for being coach at Notre Dame, less famous. He was coach at William & Mary at one time, too. Now is on ESPN and is also a motivational speaker. But apparently uh, a friend had come to him at a time that was not uh, 
not a positive time in Lou Holtz's life and asked if he had talked with anybody about the difficulties he was having. And Lou Holtz said, look, one thing I've learned in life, half the people, if you tell them your problems, they don't care, and the other half are just glad you got them. We may feel like that at times. We may feel that la- like that now. The promise that God makes to us that is an everlasting promise and enduring is that God hears the cries of his people. And hearing, God has promised that he will deliver. Now, God may deliver you in a way that's different than what, how he's delivered other people. He may deliver you in a way that is different than what you expect. Certainly that was the case of Joseph. Joseph sold into slavery and yet fulfills the destiny, the vision that God had given to him. The people of Israel, we're beginning, we see the inauguration of their deliverance, and yet they are a long way from seeing the full promises being fulfilled. And yet God is at work in delivering. We need to go back and remember that as God is at work, he continues to work in a way that is best for you and fulfills his promises at the same time and trust that the Lord knows, the Lord cares, and the Lord is delivering us. We may not feel like it. In fact, we may not even feel worthy, which is the second thing we need to look at. One of the things we need to understand is God's deliverance is always an expression of grace. Now, in one sense, you might say, well, of course, everything we talk about is grace. But we need to understand it in very specific terms. God's deliverance is not rooted and not based upon anything you and I have done. Let's look at the people in the text for just a moment. What had Moses done to warrant being the deliverer, called to be the deliverer, or even to be delivered in the first place? I mean, there was a decree that Moses should have died. He should have, if not been aborted, should have been killed upon birth. And yet God in his providence gave the cunning to his mother, she would devise a plan that would not only spare his life, but allow him to grow up in the home of the king. And then, as you know the story, all the more interesting is then since uh, the Pharaoh's daughter needed a wet nurse, she hired Moses' mother. So Moses' mother mothered Moses, even though she was not uh, legally his mother anymore. So God spared Moses for a purpose at that point in time. He raised him up, and then God goes and he calls him. When Moses left, he went and moved in with a pagan family. He'd started his own life. He was minding his own business. He wasn't really seeking God. He was just running from his own problems. And God calls this man. Moses is a man that we understand is deeply flawed if we consider about his past. Most people, if you talk with them and try to help them understand the depth of the reality of their own sinfulness, if they don't want to deal with it, they start thinking about their lives. And you might hear something like this, or you might say something like this. Well, I know I'm not perfect, but it's not like I've killed anybody or anything. And so, you know, on the scale of things, I'm better than most people. Moses didn't even have that. Moses couldn't even say, well, it's not like, oh, yep, I killed somebody. I I can't even go there. And so Moses, who was consumed by anger at one point in his life, that his anger actually fully expressed itself in killing someone, he was a deeply flawed man who, therefore, is marked as as a murderer, as a killer. There's nothing in his life that warrants him being called. Even when God calls him, what's Moses' response? Uh, I don't think so. I mean, there might have been a level of humility. He says, who am I? And there is a level of humility. It's a rather intimidating thing. I'm going to go back to the place where they already know me, and they know, and, and, and so I'm going to go tell them to, you know. But in the end, even if it was a level of humility, it was a lack of faith and trusting in God. And he said, God, this may be what you want, but I don't think so. 
This is the man that God called to be the deliverer. He delivered him to be the deliverer, not because of anything in him, but because it's the nature of, God's, uh, nature of God. Even the people of Israel, what had they done to warrant being heard and delivered? We don't know a lot specifically about the people at this time. There's not a lot of details. We do know what their parents were like. If we look at the forefathers of the people there, we would realize there's not a whole lot of, in their character that would warrant God hearing them and delivering them and, and working in them. And even as we consider these people in the process of being delivered, their attitudes and their response to the way God was working, we see that they weren't a whole lot different than their parents. Because when things were not going the way they wanted, they grumbled and they complained about Moses and about God. When things were taking longer than they thought they should, they grumbled and they complained about God. When their hotel accommodations weren't to their liking, when the food wasn't what they wanted, they grumbled and complained about Moses and about God. In fact, they complained to God about Moses, and then at some points along the way, they said, you know what, God, we'll just take care of ourselves, let's kill them. That was their plan. This is the character of the people of whom God, that God loves, and God hears the cry. Now, we don't need to go any, any further, but we realize that God's deliverance is always an expression of his grace. And the reason I emphasize that is because if we find ourselves in circumstances that we are crying out to the Lord for, and we think things are going slow, or not the way we think they ought to go, our tendency is to wonder if we are worthy. That maybe God isn't going to deliver me from this. I know some of you are wondering that right now. Is there something I've done? Am I good enough? Do I deserve God's grace in my life? And, and I can answer you. This is with, from the deep pastoral counseling expression of my heart. I will tell you, your answer to your question, am I worthy? And the answer is no. There's not anything about any of you or about me that should make God interested, but God's deliverance is not based upon our worthiness. Deliverance is rooted in God's character and linked to God's promise of the covenant to the people who belong to him. We are God's people. We are God's children. And God hears the cries of his children. And he is at work delivering us. He's delivering us from three things. I don't have time to go into any great detail about them. But we need to consider this. If you want to skip ahead, actually we won't look at the passage just for the sake of time, but in Exodus chapter 12, we see God further along in the plan of their deliverance. Moses has already gone in. He's told the Pharaoh, let my people go. Pharaoh says, no way. And God begins to inflict uh, certain incentives for Pharaoh and the Egyptian people to let the Jewish people go in the form of ten plagues. But each time there's a plague that comes, Pharaoh's heart is hardened and he still refuses. Part of that is so that people that let them go don't have second thoughts. They, they're just glad to see the Israelites go when the time comes. But we get to a point prior to the last of the plagues, Pharaoh is still going to fight back and wants to kill the firstborn of all of the Hebrew children. And God essentially says to Pharaoh, you're going to take my children, I'm going to take yours. And God says, now all, the firstborn, the firstborn of every place, everybody is going to die. And then he initiates something for the Jewish people. He says, here's what you are to do. On this date every year, 
you're going to have a party. You're going to start it this way. And you're going to take a spotless lamb and you're going to slaughter that lamb and you're going to take the blood of that lamb and you're going to put it over the doorposts of your home. And any place that I see the blood on the doorpost, I will pass over that household and spare everyone who is in it. But any place that I encounter a home where there is no, that is not marked by the blood of the lamb, there I will bring justice. I will bring out my promised judgments upon the people. Now, what we need to understand from the story of the Passover related to the story of Moses and God's deliverance is this. One, God delivers us from our circumstances. The Jewish people were in bondage, oppressed, and had been for a few hundred years. And part of what God was doing was he was trying to release them from their bondage and slavery. He's releasing them from their circumstances. We have circumstances in our lives. If not now, they're coming. Or perhaps you've experienced them in the past. That we need to be set free from. And God's deliverance is powerful enough to set us free. And he has promised that he will do it. If you are in Christ, he has already set you free in an ultimate sense. And he's in the process of setting you free permanently and perfectly. And so deliverance does deal with our circumstance. But, this, but deliverance also deals with consequences of our own lives and our own hearts. So the story of the Passover tells us this, that there are two types of people. There are people who stand before God on the basis of their own merits and their own strength. And there are people who stand before God covered by the blood of the Lamb. See, the people of Israel had to cover their homes as well because God had said, if your home is not covered by the blood of the Lamb, then Jewish or not, your firstborn will die. See, God was giving a foretaste of the judgment that is yet to come. And the scripture tells us that the wages of any sin is death. Anyone who has been unholy, imperfect before God warrants death. God was bringing judgment out at this time. And so when God was beginning to bring his judgment, everyone standing before God deserved to die. And so God made the distinction. You can either stand before me on your own, on your own merit, on your own strength, which is what all the Egyptians have done. Or you can take the protection that I'm giving to you and apply it to your life. And while you may still be guilty, I will pass over your sin, count you as mine. All of us have that same circumstance in our own lives because there's no one who stands before God righteous, not on our own strength. Even Israel, who were the children of God, they had sinned against God. They trusted God, but at the same time, they didn't trust God, much like me, much like you. And even if that was the extent of their sin, they did not give God the glory that he deserved. Therefore, they deserved the full punishment. And so God didn't just say, well, you I know, so you're fine. They must be covered by the blood of the lamb. And when they're covered by the blood of the lamb, they were spared of the real consequences of their life. Now, it's not that there's no consequences in our life. God tells us, in Hebrews, that if we never experience discipline, we are like illegitimate children. God does discipline those who are children, but the ultimate consequence that we deserve, which is death, separation, and actually God being our enemy, we are spared from that when God delivers us. 
And then ultimately, God also delivers us from the bondage and oppression, which is partly the circumstance. But part of the oppression that they had were the rules and people dictating to them how they are to live. And then God delivers us from that kind of oppression. Now, some may wonder and realize God then did give rules a few chapters later in, in Exodus chapter 20 while the people are in wilderness. God did give a set of rules. But we need to understand those rules in the light of which, for, from which God had given them. See, we tend to look at the scriptures. And, and the Jewish people later related to God as if God says this. You have a problem? I'll tell you what. Let me give you a list of ten things. If you do those, then I'll come and deliver you. Every religion in the world actually relates to their own God on the basis of if I'm good enough, then God, my God will deliver me. And the Jewish people we see throughout the rest of the Old Testament and in time of Christ, they were relating, relating to God on the basis of if I do the things that I'm supposed to do, then I can trust that, that God will love me and accept me and deliver me and fulfill the promises that he made to me. But that's not actually what God said. In the process of delivering them while they were wandering in the wilderness and God gave them the Ten Commandments, we need to realize that the preface of the Ten Commandments is vitally important for us to understand because it sets a pattern of our understanding and our relationship for God that also related to the whole aspect of deliverance, deliverance from bondage. Because rather than saying, here's the ten things I want you to do when you've done them, come back and see me, God says this, I am the God who delivered you out of Egypt. And then he gives them the Ten Commandments. What we need to understand is God has told them and reminded them that grace comes first. I have already delivered you. I've already demonstrated my love for you. I've already fulfilled my promise to you. I've already set you free. Now, do you want to know how to respond to that? How, how, you want to know how life is supposed to work? You want to know how you can have the most fulfillment in your life? You want to know how to say thank you to me for setting you free, for being your God, for fulfilling my promises? Here, here is the way that life works. And God's Ten Commandments are actually ten expressions of his grace, his demonstration of his love for us because he shows us how life works and how we can demonstrate our love to God who has already demonstrated his love for us. He puts grace first so that we are not under bondage, but we are given instructions as to how we may demonstrate love. We are set free. And we are delivered. We are delivered from our circumstances, from, our, from the ultimate consequences, and in, from oppression. But we are delivered for two things. One is we're delivered to worship. We're de delivered to be in the presence of God. That's what Moses said when he went to the Pharaoh. God told Moses to go to the Pharaoh and say this, let my people go that they may come and worship me. See, the whole purpose of setting them free was so that God would be the only one that was overseeing their lives and that the people would have fellowship with God, singing God's praises, realizing God's grace over and over in an an eternal cycle. The more they realized how greatly they've been blessed, the more they praise God. But the more they praise God, God who will not be outgiven just continues to shower them with his blessings, his providence. And that was what he's delivered them for and is what he's delivered us for as well. But God has also delivered them not only that they may worship and have fellowship with God, but that they might be the vessels 
of God's grace. Just as Moses is a vessel of God's grace, the, all who were delivered are individual packages in whom God demonstrates his grace. We are also those vessels. Because once delivered, God says, I have begun a work in you. I have set you free, and now I'm shaping you. What I have begun, I will see through to the end. What, where you are now, I will make you to be more like Christ. God is at work, and he's restoring the image that was initially given to man that has been vandalized in the fall. God is beginning as he is at work within us, having set us free from other influences and allowing him to rule over our lives. He's beginning to erase all of the ugly marks, and he's revealing the beauty as we were originally created. It's a process. And for some of us, it probably is a busier process than for others. But nevertheless, it's the purpose that God had. God has set us free. He has delivered us from bondage for his glory, for his grace. The question is, how should we respond? How do we respond? What, are, what is it we are supposed to do? There's only one thing that God had said in the Passover, and he says to you and to me. He says, here's how we respond. Remember. Remember the grace that I have already given to you. Remember that. He doesn't say just live. Remember the grace. We must understand that we need to remember that we have already been delivered. Realizing that being delivered is an essential prerequisite to living the life that we desire. We must remember that we have already been delivered. This is not only an Old Testament concept, this is what Jesus says as well. 